This podcast is brought to you by the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges. Back in July of 2016, we published an episode of this podcast called Understanding the Biological Basis of Pediatric Cancer, which featured excerpts from a conference held here at the Academy and co-presented by the Sone Conference Foundation, where some of the leading minds in pediatric oncology got together to discuss the latest developments in their field and how they might lead to newer, better treatments for children with cancer. This past February, the Sone Conference Foundation and the Academy again collaborated to hold a second similar conference, this one held at the Royal Society in London, England. It brought together people from all corners of pediatric oncology from around Europe and North America to continue this important conversation. Where are we in the fight against childhood and adolescent cancers, and how are we going to continue to move forward? Holding this conference in the UK, close to some of the world's leading cancer research centers, such as the ones at Cambridge, Oxford, and University College London, provided a whole new group of presenters and a wealth of new perspectives on the problems at hand. So we wanted to do another episode, featuring presentations from this new conference, to show how the state of research in the field has developed over the past two years, and how the fight against these terrible diseases continues to be fought by brilliant and passionate scientists all over the world. Now, a huge amount of research was presented at this two-and-a-half-day event, far more than we can discuss in detail in a single podcast. But over the course of the conference, a few overarching themes appeared. The first of these was urgency. Pediatric cancer is a big problem. According to statistics published by the American Childhood Cancer Organization, the world sees 300,000 new diagnoses of cancer in children and 80,000 deaths from it every year. And just about everyone at this conference seemed to agree that the current systems for developing, testing, and distributing treatments are not adequate to the task of stopping these diseases. Here's Dr. Richard Gilbertson, head of the Department of Oncology at the University of Cambridge and one of the conference's keynote speakers. So if you add all this up at the moment, it costs about $8 billion a year to treat pediatric malignancy. A conservative estimate is either the cost of treating it or the consequences of it in about 25 years' time will be $100 billion a year. The reality is that this is absolutely unsurmountable. We can't actually get, it's not sustainable. We cannot continue with the progress that we're making, which is painfully slow, or with this fiscal burden. And unfortunately, signs point to the fact that this problem is growing and will continue to grow unless new measures are found and taken. Here's Dr. Kathy Pritchard-Jones, professor of oncology at University College London and chief medical officer at UCL Partners. There's pretty overwhelming evidence that over the last 20 years, the incidence of childhood cancer is genuinely going up by about 13%. Despite this urgent need, though, not enough progress has been made in developing new treatments. Here's Dr. Pritchard Jones again, followed by Dr. John Maris, pediatric oncologist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and professor of pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. 
we were in a desert, particularly in Europe we felt it because our paediatric regulation incentives came in later than in the United States. But we had limited biological insights into, into what causes and drives childhood cancer. We certainly had limited access to new drugs and there was very limited interest in, of the pharmaceutical industry in developing drugs specifically for children. If you look at the adult oncology landscape, there's been this exponential increase in the number of FDA approvals for drugs. 15 or 20 a year now is what we're doing. And, but in the childhood cancers, we've really lagged behind. There are four FDA um, uh, approved drugs where there is a labeled indication for a pediatric cancer. Exacerbating this lack of available medications is that the treatments we do have, those few drugs, as well as things like radiation, chemotherapy, and steroids, are tremendously hard on the patients who take them, very often leading to extremely serious health problems in those children as they grow. Here's Dr. Smita Bhatia, Associate Director of the Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, followed by Dr. Gilbertson. Now, we know very clearly um, through all the studies that have been conducted thus far that steroids and radiation lead to osteonecrosis, that alkylating agents and pelvic radiation cause hypogonadism and premature ovarian failure and testicular failure, that anthracyclines and chest radiation result in heart failure, and that radiation and alkylating agents and topoisomerase 2 inhibitors result in second cancers, and that radiation itself causes stroke. So it's very clear that treatment exposures, and we haven't even gotten into the world of the newer drugs yet, that treatment exposures lead to adverse events. So we know that about 95% of children who are treated for cancer today will have long-term health problems. About a third of those will be chronic and severe, and they'll die prematurely of their uh, side effects-induced problems, particularly in the cardiovascular system and respiratory system and also an endocrine system. And on top of all of that, the reoccurrence rate in many childhood cancers is extremely high. Here's Dr. David Malkin, professor of pediatrics at the University of Toronto in Canada and director of the Cancer Genetics Program at the Division of Hematology Oncology at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. Second cancers and, and subsequent cancers are uh, very, very frequent. I uh, just uh, found out one of my patients who we've been following, she's 14 years old and has just been diagnosed last week with her fifth distinct malignancy. So how do we address this huge and growing problem? Well, it's difficult. As we discussed in that previous episode of the podcast, cancer isn't like other diseases. It's not really one disease at all. It's an overarching term for anything that causes uncontrolled cell growth that leads to malignant tumors. And it turns out there are a lot of different things that can lead to malignant tumors. The more we learn about the genetics of different types of tumors, the more we realize that there are literally thousands of different types of cancer, each with a slightly different cause, each of which respond differently to different treatments. Here's Dr. Gilbertson and Dr. Pritchard Jones again. It was easy when I first started pediatric cancer because everybody had the same kind of cancer, right? You had a medulloblastoma, you had leukemia. But actually, because of genomics, we now know they all have different kinds of cancer. There's a wealth of information and data about childhood cancers and they are becoming sub-sub-classified and I just learnt 
you know, I thought medulloblastoma was four categories. I learnt yesterday it's now 12. Oh my God, you know, so if we do that to every childhood cancer, it's, it's thousands of diseases. Here's Dr. Minyan Lee-Chun Lo, professor of clinical pediatrics at the Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of California, San Francisco, giving the conference's other keynote address, in which she discussed some of the wide variation within just the very specific kind of blood cancer that is her specialty, juvenile myelomonocytic leukemia, or JMML. And what's interesting is that, you know, these different um, genotypes actually respond differently to target inhibitors. And begs the question of, you know, is one-size-fits-all therapy going to be relevant for this disease? To make this already maddening complexity even worse, it seems there can even be significant genetic variation within the same tumor. Some clinicians say they are seeing misdiagnoses and therefore ineffective treatments because they've biopsied one part of a tumor and not another. Here's Dr. Michael Taylor, a pediatric neurosurgeon and oncology researcher also from the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. There's been this very, very interesting uh, area of cancer biology, largely coming out of the UK in Charlie Swanton, showing that in renal cell cancer, there is this, uh, this idea of geographic heterogeneity. So I decided, along with a couple of my neurosurgical buddies, to start taking six to eight biopsies of every medulloblastoma we operated. We took them as far apart as possible, left side, right side, top, bottom, front, back, and then we studied them using genomics. These two pieces of this guy's GBM are more similar to these other people's GBM than to these four pieces over here. So that means the left half of somebody's tumor is more similar to another guy's tumor than it is to the right side of the tumor. So I am a surgeon, and when I send off a biopsy to the pathologist, I get to pick usually where I took it from the tumor, right? And we usually do this, and we just take one biopsy of the tumor, and that's what we sequence, and that's what we use to determine what the mutations are there, what subgroup the tumor is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what if I pick the top version, top portion of the tumor versus the bottom, the left side versus the right? I'm a left-handed surgeon, so maybe I'm going to have a different result because I always take the left-hand piece of the tumor first, and the right-hand surgeons are going to have a different result. That doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? And I'm very sorry to report that it gets worse. Because once we've figured out what kind of cancer we're dealing with, and assuming it's a kind of cancer that we think we might know some of the causes of, which is not anywhere near all of them, we still have to design a treatment and that means picking what's referred to as a clinical target. Something, usually a defective protein in the patient's body, that can be altered or removed or destroyed in order to kill a cancer or prevent it from growing and spreading. And unfortunately, a lot of the most promising targets for pediatric cancer treatments are devilishly hard to attack. To give you a sense, here's Dr. Lowe again, describing the challenges of targeting a protein called RAS, R-A-S. Now, we know that a particular kind of mutation in RAS in someone's body can lead to tumor development and cancer, and that somehow targeting that mutation activation has a good chance of preventing that cancer from growing. But knowing that and being able to do something about it are two very different things. Now, this is a little technical, but I hope it'll give you a sense of the complications involved. 
we actually look at um, several different ways of targeting RAS. And, and as many of you also know, targeting RAS, um, oncogenic RAS, is actually quite difficult. So why is it so difficult to potentially target a mutant um, RAS oncogene? Well, RAS has picomolar affinity for guanine-nucleotides, and there's an excess of GTP in the cells. The phosphate binding loop, or the P-loop of RAS, is structurally constrained, so it's really hard to get something in there. And a small molecule therapeutic would actually have to restore GTPase activity. So that's a really difficult thing to, to wrap your mind around. Certainly not something I can think of, but it's hard. Here's Dr. Gilbertson again. These are immensely difficult targets. They themselves are probably undruggable, but this is the reality. These are the targets that we have to go after. This is the sort of thing that we're faced with. The notion that there'll be a single mutation, we all know this, in a kinase for which you can have a drug and that will cure half the patients is nonsense. Most of the time when we see mutations, uh, even if we add the drug, which could be for pharmacokinetic reasons, um, we actually don't see an effect. And as we continue these fantastic efforts uh, into sequencing children's cancer and understanding the genome and epigenome uh, more, this will only increase. And all of this is further complicated by the fact that while childhood cancer overall is quite widespread and growing, most individual childhood cancers are very rare. And like with all rare diseases, collecting data about them can be very difficult because there are so few patients to study. Here's a piece of good news, though. There's actually a surprising amount of data out there about many of these diseases because the pediatric cancer community has been very good about getting their patients into research studies and very good about sharing this data across studies and between countries. Here's Dr. Raphael Rousseau, Executive Vice President, Head of Product Development and Chief Medical Officer at Gritstone Oncology, a biotechnology company based in Northern California, followed by Dr. Kimberly Stegmeier, a pediatric oncologist at Harvard Medical School, Boston Children's Hospital, and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And now working uh, in the adult space, I realize how fortunate I think we are in the pediatric space for all the organizations that have been set up for the past 40 years where pretty much every child is offered to participate to some sort of clinical trial, whether it is ob observational or, um, or not. But compared to the adult space where very few patients are actually participating to clinical trials. And so our hope is this type of data will allow us uh, to take patient tumors and really using now established literature, clinical genomics, and a dependency map model to try to better identify additional targets for the children that we're treating. This is a mass of complex data, though. Statistics that span thousands of patients with thousands of different kinds of cancers. And what it requires is a level of statistical analysis that far exceeds what most oncology researchers are trained to perform. This is inspiring many in the field to reach out to collaborations with people who love working with impossibly huge data sets, mathematicians and computer scientists. Here's Dr. Malkin, followed by Dr. Gilbertson. The mass of data and trying to integrate it in one way so that you could develop predictive models is probably behind normal human brain power of biologists and geneticists, but is within the brain power of computational mathematicians, uh, people who are able to model uh, these sorts of things. Whether it's imaging data, whether it's three-dimensional data, or whether it's genomic data, it's all just numbers. So this is a mathematical problem. You can actually reduce all data sets down simply into numbers. 
And the reason that's important is because then we can start to turn this into a statistical, mathematical and computational problem. So at Cambridge, we've just launched the Centre for Integrated Cancer Medicine with some philanthropic support from New York. And the way that works is that you have a patient and you'll get from that patient, using the prism as an analogy, lots of different data streams, whether it's clinical phenotyping, liquid biopsies, um, advanced imaging, such as hyperpolarized imaging, RNA-seq, whole genome sequencing, a whole host of data. And what we want to be able to do is actually numericize all of this data and turn it back into a single source of white light data that gives you an answer for what that patient should be doing or what you should be doing with that patient as you move forward. And if you can do that serially, through the process of that patient's disease, then you'll have a dramatic way of using this kind of information. And this is just one example of an exciting trend amongst researchers to break down long-standing intellectual walls between different kinds of scientists and different kinds of thinking in order to get new perspectives on difficult problems like this. Children's cancer research must be a continuum. So what do I mean by that? Well, actually, the disease itself goes from a normal tissue and then go all the way through to malignant treatment and cure. And we all like to think about our pet things in the middle of this, stem cell niche, cell hierarchy, microenvironment, immune system, cell of origin, clonal evolution, all the way through to late effects. But the problem of this is it's completely siloed in how we think about it. We have to have a complete concept of individuals, a church of people who make a congregation that are constantly in that research process throughout the entire continuum. If we don't do that, we're completely wasting opportunities. Here's Dr. Andrew Kung, chair of the Department of Pediatrics at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center here in New York. So when I moved over to Memorial Sloan Kettering, we decided to try to build a platform that would help to address some of these deficiencies. And the way that we built this platform was to uh, consider a matrix organization within the department where the individual disease groups treat specific types of disease. These are vertically oriented uh, disease teams. But what we wanted to do was to layer on top of that a translational platform that would cut across all patients treated within the department, regardless of what disease area they were treated in. And so we built something called the Pediatric Translational Medicine Program, and this program was charged with doing a few things. Number one, it was charged with bringing the latest and best clinically applicable genome-wide technologies to the diagnosis of disease for every patient that we treat. We also built into the platform, we want to interrogate cancer predisposition for every patient that we treat. And so we're interrogating the germline, not just somatic changes. However, that's all on the side of figuring out what went wrong. We wanted to, within this platform, also build out a portfolio of molecularly informed therapies that would allow us to do, to do something to target abnormalities that we found. And finally, within this platform, we wanted to hardwire it to the dry labs and the wet labs so that we could drive discovery forward. You see, one of the silos these kinds of programs are breaking is one of the longest standing and, to an outsider, perhaps surprising, the segregation of research from treatment. Traditionally, and for a long time, 
the laboratories that do the initial stages of research were kept largely separate from the treatment of actual patients with diseases. There are a lot of reasons for this, one of which might have been the feeling that being proximate to actual patients might somehow cloud the data, perhaps because the desire to help people would encourage a researcher to see false positives. What large-scale translational programs like the ones we just heard about are starting to show, though, is that by bringing everyone to the table and grabbing as much data as we can from all stages of the process, from early research to final treatment, we can speed up the improvement of both research and treatment. And so, uh, so this is a paradigm that demonstrates how even in the setting of moving the experiment to the patient, and providing clinical benefit to the patient, we can still use the translational tools to understand something about mechanism, mechanism of transformation, mechanism of therapeutic response, mechanism of resistance. And so we can build in discovery, but do so in a post-clinical manner. And this drive for efficiency dovetails with another theme repeated over and over at this conference. Frustration with the long amount of time between developing a promising new drug and being able to use it on actual patients. While everyone sees the need for making sure new treatments are safe and effective before they're used with the clinical population, many expressed a desire for the approval system to be reworked and streamlined so it could run more quickly and effectively. Here's Dr. Kung, Dr. Lowe, and Dr. Stefan Burdock of the Technical University in Munich, Germany. A new chemical entity going into clinical testing for a molecular target usually goes into an adult first, almost always goes into an adult first, and there's usually at least a six or seven year lag before the first pediatric trial is opened. And so despite the fact that there's this logarithmic growth in terms of molecularly informed therapies, there is a very long lag in terms of when children are availed of those therapies. We actually do have a study open. Um, it activated in September 2017. It's actually a CTEP-sponsored, COG-sponsored uh, study, and it's a super simple one and very simple endpoints, objective response and then safety and toxicity. We just have two dose levels, and we have a slew of biological um, correlative studies to assess molecular and biochemical um, efficacy, resistance mechanisms, et cetera. It's 24 patients. It took six years to develop this trial, and it is not because we didn't work on it. So I think that, that when we talk about disruptive um, approaches, we really have to push industry uh, and our government into doing this faster because there's no reason why this should have taken this long. If I remember how many forms I have to fill out in a clinical trial, I'm convinced that at least 75% of these forms that we are filling out don't have any relevance for the future development and for the safety of this drug. I'll give you one example. When I was talking uh, to the regulatory authorities in Germany about our transgenic T-cells to treat children with refractory urine sarcoma, uh, this uh, official person was asking me what is the evidence from your preclinical models that you have that your patient will not develop an autoimmune disease in 10 years. 
And I told him I have no evidence at all. But my problem is my patient has a life expectancy of four months. And he said, well, that's not our problem. That's your problem. And this is an attitude we have to change in the regulatory authorities. And if we get this change, we will be able to reduce the cost and to regain an equipoise between safety benefit and regulatory volume. Perhaps the through line that connects everything discussed at this conference was the need to question conventional wisdom, to examine everything at every stage of research and development and ask if there's a better way. Or, as Dr. Gilbertson put it, If you're comfortable with something, it's probably wrong or needs to be considered to be changed. One of the pieces of conventional wisdom that's being questioned with surprising and promising results is the idea that there's no way to screen children for genetic predispositions to cancer, and that doing so would be a waste of time anyway because there are no preventative treatments for childhood cancers. Here's Dr. Gilbertson, Dr. Stefan Pfister from the Heidelberg University Hospital and German Cancer Research Center, and Dr. Malkin again. And before you say this is not possible because we don't screen kids, that's nonsense. This is the uh, immunization schedule for children in this country at 8 weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, 1 year, 2 year. If you had a test that was relatively non-invasive, either based on breath or a small blood stock, that could pick up pediatric cancers, imagine what that would do when these children are coming routinely to every GP surgery in this country. That's the kind of thing that we need to start thinking about. Um, I think that um, hereditary predisposition is an underappreciated um, clinic um, problem and it really needs a dedicated infrastructure that we currently don't have and apart from breast cancer and probably colon cancer in the adult world is also not existing. So this is also something uh, that we um, can try to tackle together. Even uh, when people ask, um, um, well, this is not actionable, um, you cannot do anything about a hereditary predisposition, that I think that, it, um, that it's almost unethical not to at least offer the patients um, to do that um, if there are um, surveillance programs out there um, that, that basically can detect the, the, the tumors earlier and, and, and can increase cure rates. Sometimes if you don't take a chance, you'll never know what, um, what's going to happen. No, the, the general presence was, if you can't do anything about it, why in the world would you go and test kids for P53 germline mutations? So we developed this surveillance protocol primarily to see if it was feasible, but also as a secondary aim to see if it would have any effect on tumor outcome. And in fact, whether it be in children or adults. Um, Anita Villani is a brilliant uh, clinic, clinician and um, uh, cancer genetics uh, expert uh, and fellow at the time uh, demonstrated quite nicely that in fact there is a survival advantage for individuals who were screened for early tumor detection who are P53 mutation carriers over those who are not. It is not perfect, but it is at least the first attempt at using screening in a pediatric session, as a, a, a pediatric context for early tumor detection. Another long-standing assumption that's now being seriously questioned is the idea that the best way to treat cancer is as aggressively as possible. Many are now triangulating the absolute destruction of tumors and precancerous elements with the downstream effects of those aggressive treatments, and finding that in terms of long-term health and survival, less is in fact sometimes more. Here's Dr. Taylor, followed by Dr. Bhatia. 
As I said, I am a surgeon. I'm gonna just go very quickly over something surgical here. Right now, across North America, across Europe, across the world, neurosurgeons think they need to take out all of the medulloblastoma. And it's better for the patient if you do. But what we do see in both progression-free survival and overall survival, once we account for molecular biology, is there is really no benefit to overall survival for a gross total versus a near total re resection, and almost no benefit from a gross total slash near total resection and a subtotal resection. I'm not saying that you shouldn't take out tumors when they're coming out easily, but I'm saying as neurosurgeons, from now on, we should be trying to get those patients out of the operating room intact. We should not be giving them egregious neurological insults just to have an MRI that looks good at tumor boards so we can brag to our buddies. We as a pediatric oncology community have worked steadily from um, get-go in terms, of, at least for the last three decades, in terms of reducing the doses and intensity of treatment in order to prevent late effects. And what has that resulted in? This was an article which we published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which showed that overall mortality, all-cause mortality, declined from that in the 1970s to 80s to 1990s. These were the results of the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study. But even more importantly, that death from health-related causes i.e. non-recurrence, declined again from 1970s to 1980s to 1990s. So the question is, are we there yet? And the answer is not yet, but I do believe we are solidly on the right path. And despite the daunting nature of the task ahead of them, that kind of optimism was actually very pervasive at this meeting, with many of the experts present feeling strongly that important new breakthroughs are coming and coming soon. Here's Dr. Kung. For all of these reasons, I think this is a very exciting time for all of us in pediatric oncology. And what our obligation should be going forward is to bring the latest advances not only on the diagnostic and the laboratory side, but also the therapeutics and figure out how to put them together, not to benefit patients in the future, but the patients in the clinic now. And for us to learn in every case by doing the kind of correlative studies and mechanistic studies so that patients in the future can also benefit. Thanks for listening to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences. This episode was written and produced by your host, David Hoffman, with scientific and administrative oversight by Dr. Marie Samanovic-Golden, Dr. Allison Carley, and Dr. Melanie Brickman-Borchard of the New York Academy of Sciences. All the quotes heard in today's episode were taken from speeches at the podium at the event Sohn Conference, Accelerating Translation of Pediatric Cancer Research, presented by the Sohn Conference Foundation and the New York Academy of Sciences, and held in London, England, February 26th through 28th, 2018. This event was not organized or endorsed by the Royal Society. Very special thanks to the experts we heard from, Richard Gilbertson of the University of Cambridge, Kathy Pritchard-Jones of University College London, John Maris of the University of Pennsylvania, Smita Bhatia of the University of Alabama, Birmingham, David Malkin and Michael Taylor of the Hospital for Sick Children, Toronto, Mignon Lee-Chun Lo of the University of California, San Francisco, Raphael Rousseau of Gritstone Oncology, Kimberly Stegmeyer of Harvard University Medical School, Andrew Kung of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Stefan Burdach of the Technical University, Munich, and Stefan Pfister of Heidelberg University Hospital. For more information about the Academy and all of its programs, as well as to listen to other podcasts, please visit www.nyas.org. 
You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on social media at NYA Sciences on Twitter and Instagram or the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges. 